Okay, we're live. So, Laura, whenever you're ready, okay. kick us off. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation. Hell yeah. My name is Laura, and I am the literature enthusiast in the room, she, her. And my name is Danny, and I'm the self-appointed film expert, he, him. Laura, I'm so proud of you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> she gets nervous doing the intro, but you killed it there. Thank you. Yeah, no no funny sketch at the top. Uh, this is not the, not the day for that, not the source material that uh, would be appropriate for that. However, it is going to be a fun episode regardless. Why? because we have a special guest with us the guest episodes are always the best episodes not because we get the most listens from them but because they're so fun yeah well we always get new perspectives when we have people on the podcast so let's introduce our special guest this episode danny i guess you know stage best yes we go way back to college our college days we met in the comedy scene, Boston University has a big comedy scene with uh, improv and sketch and stand-up comedy. And I met this person during that very special time and we road tripped across country together once we graduated or once I graduated. Very formative period in my life. We have a lot of stories from that. Almost got arrested a few times. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that off mic. But anyways, please welcome to the pod sage houston sage say hi hello i am sage houston uh she her the self-appointed film and literature dum-dum <laughs> that is selling yourself short way too short <sighs> i just love the word dum-dum and i'll talk about any arrest record anytime <laughs> i've been re-watching uh 30 rock recently and i love when liz lemon comes into the room she's like hey dum-dums <laughs> It truly is like such like such a small takedown, but so much gravity. Yeah. It feels good to say, and it feels good to hear. True, true. Well, would you like to introduce yourself at all or talk about what you're getting up to or promote anything that's going on in your life right now? Uh, sure. Uh, if, if any listeners are Chicago-based, I am a Chicago-based comic. I am uh, going to be on a new house team at the Annoyance Theater and generally just doing a bunch of things around the city so feel free to you know we'll do plugs and instagrams at the end but i will say that uh i remember being danny's coach for his first stand-up show ever and i remember that very fondly sitting in the room as he went over his brilliant jokes oh, oh stop that's so fun. but please go on uh no yeah i was so nervous i wrote all my jokes down on a bunch of index mm -hmm. cards and i almost dropped out because i'm like no one's gonna laugh at this but through Sage's guidance and a couple of tweaks, ended up having a pretty good set. Uh, it was my only set <laughs> for a while, but still a solid one, thanks to Sage. So I'm eternally grateful for that. It was wonderful and great to be a part of it and the birth of Iron Man. Oh, for the listeners, that was a character. I had two irons and I came out and did my character of Iron Man. That's basically it. The, the, I, I announced that, <laughs> that Iron was Man, the joke. That's the joke, that Iron Man is not the Marvel uh, character. It's just me with two irons. 
and making a bunch of iron jokes. And after each punchline, <laughs> you would exude the steam from the iron. <laughs> and it really, it really enhanced uh, every joke to have that little stinger at the end with the steam, like. And my complexion has never been better. What a steamy room that was. Well, we can't wait to come out to Chicago and see you do some form of comedy at some point. We'll get out there. We absolutely promise. Because I got to meet you in person. We've never met in person, it's but we've talked really wild. Now for years. We have exchanged yeah. letters, gifts, postcards. We we've have. talked on the phone numerous times. I think you are probably one of the closest people in my world, and I've never met you. Yeah, it's, I mean, that part sucks, but I love love being friends with you right back <laughs> we're at so you. excited to have you on yeah. Excited yeah. To be here. um yeah this is this has been a long time coming and we're really excited to introduce sage's choice for the podcast which is blue is the warmest color which was a graphic novel that was published in 2010 by jewel Moreau. By Jewel Moreau. Thank you. They, them, we're going to be using their pronouns on this podcast. And the movie came out in 2013, directed by... The darling of the French cinema. One of the greatest on this side of the Seine. Abdel Latif Kashish. There we go. Thank you for saving me on that one because I didn't memorize his name. And starring a couple of pretty prominent French actresses, I would say. Lea Sadeau, who is in the upcoming No Time to Die, James Bond movie. Yeah, and was Inspector, the Bond girl in Spectre. Right. And Adele Exarchopoulos in French, I think. But okay. I'm not going to stand sure. by that because I don't speak French. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I was so excited when Sage suggested that we do this because I had never read the graphic novel, nor had I seen the movie. And I'm always interested to watch stuff and read stuff that I've never done before. So, uh, Sage, do you want to kick us off with your journey with the source material? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, I'm just excited. I remember pitching this way back and that graphic novels were something that y'all wanted to do eventually but it was going to come up in later seasons and it's very exciting that since then to have done a couple episodes on manga and watchmen uh a lot of fun stuff so i feel like we're keeping a fun pattern going i had never seen the movie prior to this podcast uh it was the all the book for me uh when i was in college started this like big graphic novel journey based off of a i believe it was v for vendetta was my first one and that led to Watchmen, led to a large Arthur Moore rabbit hole, which was really fun, and started looking into more of heavy hitters in the genre, and Blue's Warmest Color is one that came up a lot. And I think, I mean, I have my theories as we go along. I'll get into my theories at the end about why I think this book rocked me so much, because I believe it is it is a book mostly about identity through the lens of sexuality. And I think that is probably why I connected with it a lot, especially learning more about Jewel Moreau. And I, I just remember being like heavily emotional reading this and going back and reading it again. Like I, I can see why uh, it's also fun to look back at the lens of your younger years, how uh, melodrama <laughs> is quickly kicked over then. Reading it now, I'm just like, okay, this is a little dramatic. Uh, yeah, a time when I was questioning a lot of things too. It was very neat to read any bit of, fiction or anything that felt like you weren't alone mm, yeah um danny do you want to talk about your journey sure so i didn't know it was 
based on previous source material until Sage told us <laughs> that it was. I had no idea. Uh, it's not well known, the graphic novel, in the States, it seems like, uh, just from my opinion. But the movie is well known, at least among film majors and cinephiles, due to its infamous nature. Uh, it's very, it's NC-17. So it, it features explicit sex scenes and there was a controversy around the film. So I knew about the controversy. I knew how it won uh, the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. That's like the Cannes Film Festival's version of uh, Best Picture, basically. They have a few awards like that, but it was awarded to this film. And it was the first film where the two leads were awarded the Palme d'Or in addition to the director. Normally, the trophy just goes to the director, but the panel, which included Steven Spielberg and Ang Lee and other prominent filmmakers, they thought that the actresses did such a good job that they set this precedence where they should be awarded along with the filmmaker. So I knew about its controversial legacy and then also its legacy uh, with its two main actresses winning the awards. I'm a fan of uh, Leia Seydoux. I don't think she's particularly great in Spectre, but that's not her fault. It's just the writing. Her character is not really there in my opinion, but I'm a fan of her outside of that. Uh, she's great in The Lobster. I recommend that film. But yeah, I, I didn't end up watching the film until a few days ago for this podcast. was really taken by it. And I know I have some, we have some thoughts on its length, which we'll get to. And that's kind of part of it. And I read the graphic novel within the past few days as well. It's a, a quick read. I'm happy that I can finally discuss this because after years of just hearing about its infamous sex scenes, now we can finally talk about it. Thank you both for sharing. Yeah, I, like Danny, have a lot shorter journey than Sage does with this material, but I really appreciated it because, you know, I'm always trying to expand my perspective through reading different people's experiences of life. And gosh, the first time I read it, I read it in one night because I just couldn't put it down. It was devastating. I went through it again and tried to break it down a little more artistically. I honestly was really surprised at how much I liked the movie because when I heard it was three hours, I was kind of like, that's so shocking for such a short graphic novel. Um, what did the director pull out of it that wasn't in the novel? But I think even though it's super long, I was absolutely hooked. And I thought I was going to watch the movie in two parts because it's, it's, technically called parts one and two or chapters one and two but I watched it right through I was absolutely sucked in and I think the number one reason for that was the acting is just incredible I guess this is something we can talk about later too this isn't so much my journey as just really what sucked me in but the film style it's really all close-ups every single shot is like tight cut on faces and watching people like process their emotions through their facial expressions it's just so emotional it's really hard not to identify with a lot of characters even if you don't go through a lot of the same experiences that the characters are having because it elicited such an empathetic response in me i was just totally drawn in so that's my journey into the analysis as well <laughs> yeah jump in the gun but anyway yeah i mean i guess we can start with sort of comparing and contrasting because the movie is pretty different, I would say, oh, in a lot of yeah. plot lines. So yeah, what, Sage, what did you notice right off the bat and what did you, you know, like or dislike about things? Well, I think it's very notable right off the get. I'll play my cards early. I think there are two movies here. 
and there was one movie that I really enjoyed and there were somewhere I was like I don't understand what's happening I have very few good things to say about this director and he did not acknowledge Jewel Moreau at all after the awards came in for this movie I don't know that he looked at the source material much at all at least in his mind of his own probably gravitas and creative energy it was probably all his own. And I think that alone is a huge red mark on it because what cruelty. And I think a lot of the things that he changed made things worse. I think he left a lot on the floor by concentrating on different aspects of it. He filled in a lot of details because, I mean, the movie is three hours. And like Danny said, graphic novels are so quick to read that like you could not find more of an antithesis if you tried. He did fill in a lot of details. Some of those I thought were, were quite cool. One major note that I really liked as a change from to the movie is he kind of dropped all of the prejudice from the friend group. There is that, like, where they're all, like, kind of battering Adele. I'll continue to call her Clem. I think it makes more sense if we, if we use Clem across both, or Adele across both, uh, one or the other. Clem Dell. When they're peppering her for information, then it kind of seems like that whole thing, like, you were over at my house, we shared these moments, that changes. That's certainly there, but not the same way of coming at her and thinking less of her because she may be gay or bi. And her own prejudice as a character isn't there, which I do think Mm -hmm. is a strong narrative choice because it allowed to focus on the ups and downs of their relationship, of their class differences, which I know is big to him. Yeah. You know what? You mentioned the director. It was really disappointing for me to do research after I watched the movie because it took it down for me a lot. And there's actually a press kit that was published for the Cannes Film Festival. You can find it online. And the interview that was included in there was really discouraging because he said in the question and interview portion that he would say that his movie was more inspired by the book than based on, quote unquote. And I think you're totally right. Like it's a lot of what he said was really discouraging. Like you mentioned, he didn't give either of the two main characters any credit when he was accepting the award. And I get really defensive when a book or some or a graphic novel is adapted by someone like a man when there's the source material is about a female experience like I always get a little bit sensitive because it completely reframes the story through the male gaze Mm -hmm. and it's upsetting that there are a lot of things that were a little heavier handed and not as nuanced because that person had not gone through the things that Jewel Moreau had most likely experienced in their lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those cases where it gets awkward because we admire the art, but you you can't condone the actions um, of the artist. And you always hear of those stories like Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher just absolutely torturing uh, their actors with numerous takes and psychological abuse and yet their films are some of the best pieces of art ever made so how the film is made is might seem like to condone the or or to to praise the process and this is something where i really do admire the the changes that 
Kashish made. But Moreau has had a visceral reaction to the film. Their comments are online and, and we'll read them off in a They're bit. Great. But uh, <laughs> they, did, they did not like the film at all, likened it to porn. And I pretty much love the film, except for I wasn't offended by the long sex scenes. I just simply put they're too long. When you're editing a film, you make distinct choices of how long a scene should be. And with those second scenes, the point was made and then some, and they continue to go on where it's like, wow, you're just inviting controversy at this point. I feel like if that was just cut down, that it would have made a pretty perfect movie in my eyes. But yeah, it, it's kind of a shame that it's been tainted a little bit by the director's uh, responses after the fact. And in Jewel Moreau's defense, not defense, I don't know, we're not coming after Jewel, just to kind of give some more context. I am. No. <laughs> Whoa, hot take. Okay. <laughs> uh, to just kind of give, give more context, Jewel did have some good things to say about the movie. I'm imagining that they probably enjoyed the same parts of the movie that I enjoyed, that there were some beautiful through lines that maybe all of us enjoyed some really wonderful intimacy at moments like great fall in love at first sight you really do believe the actresses are incredible and you really do believe this story i think where they they kind of came up at odds especially with those scenes it's at least it seems to me is just in their inaccuracy and just that i think this is a cis pet male's interpretation of what lesbian sex looks like or not lesbian sex, yeah. bisexual sex, two, two women having sex. That's what they think it looks like. And that's, I think, where Jewel was like, I don't know about that. And more power to them. I love the, the quote where there's one thing missing from this movie, lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like exactly what you I said, Laura. Yeah, it's like it's the director absolutely should have been a gay woman. No doubt, bisexual woman. A queer woman of any way. Like that, that should have been... I, like when I not knowing anything about this movie, when I learned that it was directed by a man, I was like, that's problematic. <laughs> and it turned out to be the case. Exactly. Right. And yeah. And especially when I learned it was a man, I'm like, I just assumed that the man had some insight into obviously not the lesbian experience, but perhaps gay or, or bisexual experience. But nope, he's just a he's a straight man. <laughs> and it co wrote it with his wife, who is straight. So it's like, hmm, there's really no uh, insight here. Well, and I guess if I can add my two cents, there's something to be said about normalizing queer relationships on screen. And I think we don't have a problem necessarily with queer people being in normal situations and like being the star of a movie that's about buying a house or adopting a child or something that isn't as intrinsically about how queer love is experienced. Whereas the graphic novel is very much about that experience. I think it's really hard to take that away from the story and end up with the same things that Joel Moreau is trying to say. And even in an interview that I read from the director, he said that it wasn't his focus to portray that. Like he didn't want to focus on the relationship or he didn't want to focus on the lesbian nature of their relationship. He wanted to just express like the first love experience. And I, again, I, I just think it's, it's difficult for a straight man to necessarily add something and again, this is coming from a straight person. So I'm just being very judgmental. But you know, if I'm if I'm using it as some kind of material to widen my eyes and, and try to like, 
you know, use this as a way to become a better ally or be a better listener to people. Hard to say that I'm going to be learning something from someone who's straight, who kind of shares my experience of the world. No, to sum it, it up. is. It's like, I think it's his greatest strength in approaching this book and his greatest weakness in being like, they're gay, so what? Mm -hmm. And I think you lose a lot. It's cool that like, you know, to drop the prejudice, but it's, you lose a lot because he has no, he has no context to be having that conversation at all. Yeah. So something that I really wanted to talk to you about, Sage, was the ending of the graphic novel, which is extremely tragic and I did not see coming and it gutted me, of course, as it would anyone. So spoilers, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the ending and how that affected you and how it affected you to see that not in the film? Like... How did that sort of hit you? No, for sure. I I mean, this could be an interesting, I think we could go on and on about this, Laura, about how often in a literary to cinematic experience, death is removed. Uh, mm. That death doesn't, death doesn't sell tickets, baby. Uh, <laughs> I think about, about that with Wicked a lot, you know, the book versus the stage show podcast spinoff. Sorry, Danny, you're out. Laura and I are talking... Uh, book to stage adaptation. <laughs> We're deep diving. <laughs> so I wasn't surprised when it wasn't included uh, in the movie. I don't know that it's earned. I think this is where the, one of those things that the melodrama of it hits a little hard upon second reading. And mm-hmm. it actually, going back to one of your former episodes of this podcast, in your discussion about Call Me By Your Name, which I think has a lot of parallels with this book and movie, if we let Elio die at the end or if he says his life is over we lose a lot in that capacity for growth saying that everything you everything that's worth doing is fulfilled by a first love however great that love is it's just not true like we have to keep that door open to potential and hope and i think letting clem die kind of pulls the rug out a little bit from the rest of the narrative that being said upon third I guess two and a half readings, which I've tried to go back and read it a lot in preparation for this. It does center it that although Clem is the focus of the entire story, I do believe the book is actually about Emma. And I think Jewel is writing through the perspective of Emma. And I think it being Emma's narrative is what changes it from being a story about somebody's bisexual journey to someone dealing with identity. And by allowing Clem Parish, you do put full focus on Emma at the beginning and at the end. And I do think that's what Jewel intended, even if it's kind of a unsatisfactory way of getting there. That's a really good way of saying it. I I also started wondering if this is more a book about Emma than about Clem slash Adele in the movie, as we said earlier. Clemdale. Um, you're totally right. The graphic novel is framed by Emma's experience of this tragedy. And that's something that I didn't get until my second read. And I, I started paying a little bit more attention to that in the movie. And I think you can make a really good argument that while both are growing in different ways... Emma has to take a step back in a lot of ways from the way that she has kind of conducted her life up to the point when she meets Clemdell. The the tragedy in the book, like you said, is that we don't get to see Clem progress and sort of grow forward and change, but Emma certainly gets to continue her growth 
and her journey. So that's something that is interesting to ponder. After every, every breakup, I need, you know, it doesn't have to be a death. You continue to change. And I think that that's an interesting thing to, to sort of meditate on with Emma, like how, how her life will change after this end. Absolutely. And I think it kind of comes into, I just keep hinting at this, uh, this big reveal I'm going to have at the end. It's not a big reveal. But I, I think the fact that Jewel writes Emma that way, I think is, is very impactful about the story. That there are, are hints to a story that I don't think Jewel realized they were telling and maybe didn't know they needed at the time. Mm-hmm. But we can get into that later. Yeah, I don't know why to eliminate the death in the movie. Uh, it seems that it definitely wasn't happening. It's like, she's not getting uh, addicted to those perks. So clearly something's right. different. Yeah, it seems like the movie is solely Adele's perspective and experience. She's in every single scene of this three-hour movie. As you alluded to earlier, the movie is much more about the first love, that kind of giving yourself emotionally, physically to another person completely, and then uh, the insecurities and courage that comes with allowing yourself to love someone, and then with the breakup, the intense heartache and how that person stays with you even years after you you part ways so it's solely Adele's perspective and and more about the relationship and the breakup as opposed to any homophobia or pushback they get from being lesbians even even in the middle of the film where there's a, a time jump and Adele is suddenly living with Emma there's a time jump there no, was I'm kidding <laughs> I was about to be just like, wait, what? <laughs> explain it. I was about to mansplain it. Um, but Every yeah. time you explain something, you mansplain something. Yes. Take responsibility for That's that. That's true. I'm, I apologize on behalf of all men. <laughs> it, they initially did shoot a scene uh, where Adele's parents kicked her out for not being open to their daughter having... Uh, a relationship with a woman and that's why she was living with Emma in the first place but that scene was cut because they felt it wasn't needed and and truth be told it it really isn't like I accepted like okay some time has passed and now they're a couple it, it totally makes sense and I think to add that to the film of her parents having this big dramatic scene where where they don't accept her it would have taken away from the focus which was the relationship and it would have made it melodramatic which is I think also how I interpreted the ending of the graphic novel of her dying, it did feel a bit much. I think we're all in agreement there. So that, that's kind of the biggest difference between the graphic novel and, almost, and the movie. Yeah, and almost, uh, I mean, I know she dies because she becomes addicted to opiates, but it's pretty much hinted that it's she dies of a broken heart because she starts taking the pills after the breakup. So And then her heart stops. So yeah, that's... Yeah, a little... Um... <laughs> The nose, Moreau. <laughs> is it Jewel, Julie Moreau or Jewel? Good question. It was originally credited to Julie in the English translation, I believe, but they go by Jewel. Gotcha. And I think they may have changed their name prior to the book being released, which is why a lot of the news that you read about it, the press that you read about it, also credits them by the other name. But I think they, they gotcha, prefer Jewel. Okay. I mean, it's it's fun with French. Everything is pronounced differently. So it's safe to be like, uh, have I just been pronouncing French wrong my entire life? Uh, and the answer is yes, we all have. Because we're American. And that's what we do. We co-opt it to ourselves. It will always be freedom fries in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Danny, I do think you bring up a, an interesting point about the parents. And I think that's 
kind of an interesting topic and, and change between the two movies uh, and hints at something that I really, another thing that I really do enjoy about the movie. But in the book, I read one criticism about the book's ending about how Clemdell gets really worked up about being kicked out of the house in the book when they do the time jump and everything becomes colorful in the present day, which I think also is symbolism we're talking about. She has a moment where she says that she has been thinking so much about losing her folks, about being kicked out of the house. And this reader interpreted that as the stress that led her to getting addicted to drugs, to having the heart failure. And it is, and they were a little let down by that narrative because it is very true that, I mean, one amazing thing about Clemdell in the book is just her voracious curiosity and her eventual ability to stand up to her internalized homophobia, which I think is such an important topic when dealing with any queer topics and talking, I think it's something we, a lot of queer people deal with, having to get over our own hurdles before facing the societal hurdles. And as she's doing that, she's doing it quite quick and she's changing out her friend groups and she's internalizing this diary. I loved a lot of these passages and I loved her friendship with Valentine. We can get into that too. But to, to think that once she gets kicked out of the house, and then 10 years go by, 13 years go by, and she has not grown a bit. She has like regressed. So that she's still thinking about her parents, that she is afraid for Emma to go out and protest the Sarkozy election is uh, baffling. Like it, it changes everything about mm -hmm. what we loved about Clemdell to begin with. And so the fact that they removed that from the movie, I think is very wise. Uh, and on the subject of the parents, I know I'm talking forever. You can cut all of this out. Oh, no, <laughs> no we're no, keeping we're this not, in. No, yeah, Especially no. that comment you just yeah, made about I sound like out. all my we're favorite guests on podcasts. The, in the movie, the parents are always serving bolognese. They're, her father is famous for his bolognese. And it's a very traditional French dish. Well, it's an Italian sauce, but it is interpreted in a French dish. Uh, spaghetti bolognese is an interpreted French dish. And it's very traditional. It's very peasant. It's based off a peasant dish. And it's such a subtle way of saying that her parents are old-fashioned, stuck in the mud, and not that interesting, and not interested in challenging their ideals. So great how it's handled. And then when Clemdell brings bolognese to Emma's art party, as she starts to realize that all of Emma's friends are more cultured and quote unquote smarter than she is and she starts feeling isolated suddenly she is the traditional stick in the mud what a beautiful callback and use of food which is also a symbol in this movie and it baffles me that a director who seemingly is capable of pulling things off like this as well as making literary references to the beginning that are thematically relevant to the plot of the movie then does that nine minute blatant sex scene that has zero subtlety. Mm -hmm. And I know that, or Joel talked about in one of the interviews about how people were laughing in the theater. I laughed in my apartment while I was watching it because it felt like a sketch. The amount of cut after cut after cut and it just kept going. Yeah, it's um, nine minutes. I know when we say that it doesn't sound long, but think about that in the context of like a 90 minute comedy. Nine minutes is a, a tenth. Or um, a YouTube video. Like, go watch a 10-minute YouTube video. How many YouTube videos are going yeah. to keep your attention right. for 10 full minutes? Yeah, like, that is eternity in YouTube time. And I get the point. You are giving yourself over to a person completely, not just in the physical act of se sex, but in Adele's growth 
and realizing, you know, her desires and going through with those desires. It, I realize that they're trying to get to the visceral point of lovemaking. It's not just simple sex for sex sake it is something deeper than that is two souls conjoining into one but around the four minute mark it's like okay that's when i think naturally your mind goes to that point of the point has been made and to go any further would be excessive and you're totally right sage it it feels like a sketch because each cut the sex gets progressively more explicit and intense and I wouldn't say it's fully pornographic, but it is so it's just excessive. I really don't know what more to say like that because yeah, I was I was not laughing, but I was kind of looking at my phone and going on online and prepping for this episode, coming out with more anecdotes because I wasn't going to get any more value from continuing to watch these scenes. Well, yeah, I mean to counter your point a little bit and to Jules' point. I think that calling it pornographic is fairly accurate. Only be, and I only say that because it was a male heterosexual director taking full directorial license, informing his own, yeah, informing his own directorial choices because of his heteronormative experiences. And I think at that point, like it becomes exploitative. And, and we talked about how neither of the actors identify as queer. I don't know, like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily disrespectful. I'm not sure if I'm the right person to bring that judgment down on on those scenes but I just don't think if if you're trying to normalize queer love on screen then do it in a way that's respectful and tasteful in the way that we've seen a lot of fairly explicit heterosexual love scenes like make it tasteful make it mean something and if it's supposed to mean something about you know discovering what you're interested in and who you're interested in like don't make it excessive right that's well what happens I, unfortunately. I, I guess i'm saying is that i did find it meaningful until the halfway point of sure. the scene is i guess what i'm trying to say and then behind the scenes it's it's also a little awkward because you have one actress adele who kind of approved of the decision to make these scenes so long whereas leah cedo admitted after the fact that those scenes were it took way too long to film it was mentally straining she didn't think in the final cut the scene should be that long so the two main actresses have both uh testimonial to Kashis's methods and then condemnation of it so it's kind of like hmm where that do we doesn't sound like a safe space yeah, so, yeah what, what... <laughs> like, like like where were like that it just makes me upset like that makes me really upset because it's like where were the sex coaches where were the like did they have anybody to talk to? Like, that's what makes me feel really uncomfortable because it, it makes me question, like, who was in the room that was making people feel safe? It sounds like nobody was. And it sounds like the director just sort of made the decision to continue shooting these scenes and that wasn't comfortable for people. And that right there just makes that, me That upset. seems to be the case. From my understanding and my research, they did have those protocols there and try to make them comfortable in the sense that there were sex coaches and everyone felt, you know, they wore prosthetic uh, genitals. But where it goes into the negative side is that the shooting simply went on too long. That's where the actresses weren't consulted with their comfort. It's like they made all the effort to have a screen of comfortability and awareness, but just the fact that the shoot was so intensive and they kept all of it in, I think that's where, at least from my interpretation, where the actresses had a problem with. 
a guise of transparency. The male guise. The male guise. <laughs> so I kind of bouncing off of both what both of you were saying. Laura, when you were talking about agreeing with Jewel about where those scenes seem pornographic, I think it's actually an intention by the director to make them seem pornographic. The lighting alone is so far afield from anything else you see in the film and seems to replicate what you would see on on any porn, that kind of lighting. And to say that there is a way to replicate what you see in other movies and just have it be queer bent uh, rather than heterosexual, it happens in this movie. When they're at Clemdell's house and they're like sharing this moment, the lighting is appropriate. It's dim. It feels like two people like having a confessional, like quiet time, knowing that they have to be kind of silent. They're talking during it. They seem very together and united. Yeah, happen to be being intimate as well. So the fact that that's in the movie, that there is a basis for how it could be done, and the director chooses to do something so extensively and dramatically different from that, I, I think Kashish is trying to make a point. I just don't know what that point is. Yeah, I think that's really well said. All right, should we move on to something new? new While we're on this subject, before we switch over from, the, uh, from Clemdell's parents, just from the book, if you're ever a guest at somebody's house in any capacity, don't go, don't go into public spaces naked. Emma, like when Emma did that, I was like, what? Yeah. What human that across n- the spectrum does that? Nobody does that. I, this has happened. Sorry, it's honestly, it's almost a cliche of a lot of comedic television shows, whatever. Honestly, I feel like it's almost a comedic cliche now because someone will walk in on you like right like I don't know anybody there's actually a really funny joke in Gilmore Girls which I watch a lot uh Rory Gilmore's boyfriend sleeps over and he wakes up in the middle of the night and wants a cup of water he's he's wearing like pajama bottoms shorts or something but he starts putting on like socks and a sweater and he starts like overdressing himself to go into the kitchen and she wakes up and she's like what are you doing and he's like well, like, what if your mom walks in and she sees me and she's like, you're wearing pajamas, like, it's fine. But I think that's almost like a funnier statement of like, yeah, of course, like in normal life, like, and you're sleeping in someone else's home, like you don't walk into public spaces naked, you would overtly make sure that they know that you're not, you haven't been intimate with your partner. Absolutely. (laughs) And it is a fun callback, because earlier, Clemdell talks about her mom having insomnia. And it's a nice callback Mm. to it. But also, if you know your mom has insomnia and you're awake at the time your partner is intending to go naked to the kitchen, maybe bring that up. Mention it. That that seems like a solid (laughs) rationale there. But yeah, no, we we go to Laura's parents' house in the valley on the weekends and I even, uh, I wear shorts in the shower. Like that's how, (laughs) that's how much I cover myself. Uh, around no, here don't. I don't they've they've never seen my skin never seen your ankles yeah uh, I'm very modest Puritan around here we need to have need to have some sense of modesty <laughs> yeah in the valley you mean the valley of uh, Menlo Park you go back in time yeah. to yeah. visit <laughs> well and I wanted to go back a little bit to the relationship between Clem and Clem's parents because I think 
it's important to show, again, this is coming from a straight person. So this is just through what I've heard from friends' experiences. But I think it's important to show that, unfortunately, many, many queer people experience parents' hatred and being thrown out and not having a home and having to pick up your life after possibly coming out or being outed by someone else to your family and having something super traumatic happen like what happens in the graphic novel. I also think it's really important to discuss that there are a lot of microaggressions that don't climax in someone being thrown out of their home, but it's just a consistent, it becomes a consistent way of life of having to be a different around your, a different person around your parents or your extended family because you know that it's not going to be accepted or that your full personality is not going to be accepted. And I think that like we were saying earlier, like that is a little bit of a more subtle choice for the director to be aware of those experiences and those microaggressions versus something that's physically violent rather than emotionally violent in the movie. So I think it's just important to talk about like both of those kinds of experiences for people who aren't able to express themselves fully in front of their families. 100%. And I think an extension of it, because we don't see that replicated in the movie, which I think is a, a strong choice, it does have credence when Emma and Glendale break up, the movie, Emma is much more violent than she is in the book. I was so devastated when she calls her a slut, a whore, slaps her. That doesn't feel real to the character we saw on screen, and it especially doesn't feel real to the character we know from the book. And it's such a unnecessary level of exactly what you were saying, of aggression, when you didn't need it, didn't feel real and it didn't feel true and it was just for shock and I think again it, it's somebody who does not understand how those relationships work. I agree and I think it's so unfortunate when those kinds of emotions that every person experiences like hurt when someone cheats on you or hurt just when you break up because it's not working out. I think it's so unfortunate to ascribe violent uh, what's the word instincts to queer people because I think that's something that has been portrayed in a lot of past media and stuff that there's like something wrong with queer people and like the fact that they have to like bottle up who they really are will like quote unquote eventually climax in a sort of violent mm -hmm. fight or you know something over the top or quote unquote and stuff like that and it's like that's again like it's not physically violent toward queer people but it's absolutely emotionally violent and it can make people uncomfortable thinking that like oh my god is that going to happen to me do I have that inside me stuff like that like those are things that we don't need to put on queer people like that's that's not that's not something we need to see in media like it can happen but it's not something that we need to perpetuate consistently absolutely we're always Ursula Scar and Jafar exactly exactly <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry. Can you explain that? Ursula, Scar, and Jafar are like the queer villains in Disney oh. pop culture, and it's a really consistent trait of villains. Is like, oh, they have a queer side, so like something's wrong with them, and yeah. they become violent and evil. Like it's wild. It's unfortunate. It's awful, but it is wild. It's wildly unfortunate. There it is. Unfortunately, wild. <laughs> All right, so on today's episode, <laughs> film to stay or lit to stage, um, <laughs> we're we talking about the Broadway smash, The Lion King. The 1996 <laughs> smash hit. <laughs> <sighs>
Anyway, anyway. Uh, side note, bolognese is one of my favorite new dishes. Uh, Laura knows I order it whenever we go to any Italian establishment. doesn't even have to be a restaurant. If it's Italian-based, I'll order bolognese. <laughs> but yeah, something that All right, I I'm going to think... call you out. Name one other Italian-based place you go that is not a restaurant. <laughs> the consulate. Uh, so okay, yeah, we, we know a guy there. Um, yeah, so you had mentioned bolognese earlier and i wanted to kind of expound on that you had mentioned how it represented her parents and to her extent her plainness her inability to kind of think like be more creative like yeah yeah her traditionalness yeah as opposed to where emma is all these things you know she had blue hair that makes her different but is an, an artist is creative it has these very intellectual friends but also, I think the metaphor is deeper in the fact that when you eat bolognese or specifically just just pasta in, in general, the sauce like sticks to your mouth, like it, like it marks you. And whenever this whole movie is filmed in intense close-ups, and that first scene with her eating around the table with her whole family, I mean, their faces are just like covered in it, and they don't exactly have like bad manners, but it, it is off-putting in a visceral way which i didn't i didn't expect it just a simple scene of a family eating around a table and i think kashish said that his film is all about class and how their relationship didn't really work because of their class differences to be honest i didn't really see that like at all i mean i could see how they were in different friends groups in different like places in society but it seemed like emma was refined but not so like high class high society to that it was like so overt and would cause problems in their relationship i just i viewed it as more their breakup more in a difference in uh maturity it's just it this was adele's first relationship she felt alone deep deep into her relationship with emma and resorted to cheating and it was an obvious series of mistakes for both emma and adele but it was still she her aloneness and her inexperience with communication in relationships like that caused her to act out and that led to their breakdown in a relationship i don't really get kishis's claim that it was their class but but i think going back to the bolognese i think that just the fact that it's like slathered on her face and when Emma's eating it, she makes sure to like use a napkin and dab her mouth a little bit to make sure that there's nothing on her face. It, it's a good way non-verbally to show, I think, their difference in maturity. Yeah, and I, I think I've read a lot of stuff that people have interpreted how much food focus there is in the movie as kind of like another parallel of carnal desire of it's just fulfilling a basic need and there's even that conversation they share about like I could eat all the time even when I'm full like I think it's an attempt to be provocative that may or may not land I'm not sure yeah I think that's a good point because it is like it happens multiple times like when Clemdell eats a hero when yeah. the, when she goes out with Tomas on who's their no first Brad date. Pitt <laughs> Tomas That's, is no Brad Pitt. Oh, poor Tomas! I he he seems like such a nice person. He really is a just someone who fell in love with someone who doesn't love him. And I always feel bad for those characters because he's a very sweet 
person. I like how they played him off. You know, we can also talk about Valentine as a friend that we see. I like we talked about it earlier, but ha- one of the ways that she starts questioning in who is she's interested in, uh, she starts to change her friend groups, and Valentine is a big part of that. So, yeah, do you want to talk about that in the book and versus the movie or both? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I really love Valentine in the movie. I wish that he got more screen time. The scene that they share at the beginning is probably my favorite one because again, the acting is incredible. It's so natural. It feels so true to a friendship, especially at that age range where you're just the, what are we doing? We're figuring it all out. Yeah. And so I love that Valentine in the movie was not a stereotype. They did not lead into any stereotype there. Whereas I feel in the book, he is a little bit like the typical gay best friend, which I feel like in a story that is as progressive as this one is, a graphic novel as progressive as this one is, because at the end of the day, I think it very much is. More questions should have been asked. But he's, yeah, he's he's wonderful. I love that he, the part in the carousel in the book is truly a great scene of comforting and who doesn't want a friend like that. I saw a lot of parallels between the friend in Perks of Being a Wallflower. Well, you know what? That book and movie book came out before this, I think. So never mind. It doesn't show any progression. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so sad when we look at Clemdell in both the graphic novel and the movie and how isolated she feels. And Valentine doesn't get a lot of screen time in the movie, I think simply because they graduate and they probably have fallen apart naturally and I think something that I got out of the movie was how important it is to be a safe space to someone even if you're not in the same community and if you don't share the same experiences I think the feeling of isolation that we get from the source material in the movie is really penetrating and it makes me feel sad and upset that people don't have that in their lives sometimes it doesn't necessarily only um, apply to the queer community it it applies to a lot of communities where and I think that to me it was just a calling as like a white straight person who's from America people who have a lot of privilege because of those privileges that I just listed you need to be that safe space for someone and like Valentine is for Clemdell like she didn't take that in further in her life and I think it's really sad honestly to watch her go through her teaching experiences because I think actually in the movie it was really interesting like I think this is where the movie succeeds we watch her life for so long and it's unfortunate that we have to watch her consistently run into these issues of not feeling like she can be comfortable and confident as herself and she gets hit on And eventually cheats with the male teacher. And like, you know, she could be bi and and that's totally fine. And I'm not commenting on that. What I'm commenting more on is like the communities that she finds herself in where she doesn't feel safe and she doesn't feel like she has someone to confide in and be herself. And I think that sort of pushes her to, or not pushes her, I would say it, it keeps her in that stasis of non-growth and it keeps her in that place of immaturity at least in her relationships 
longer than it needs to because she doesn't have an outlet to sort of express those things and like work through her heartbreak and work through her immaturity where the movie succeeds is like showing her life as a teacher is really beautiful because we see her growing in a lot of different ways like she becomes a truly caring teacher and a truly caring person I just think again like the thing that she doesn't feel safe sharing is the thing that she ends up sort of getting stuck I think it's a call for someone like me to be a better ally to people so people can like feel safe sharing parts of their lives that they want to talk about. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful takeaway. Like what a, yeah, what a, what a great uh, mission to have after reading a book like this. And I, I think that moment to talk about her teaching a little bit, both the book and the movie are full of tiny magic moments, which I think I remembered most from the book reading it the first time in fact like reading it mm. again this time there were very important parts that I completely forgot but the magic moments were there and I think in the movie that's definitely one of them is after the kids leave after the dance recital and she like starts to cry it's a response to her own loneliness I think but definitely shows how much she loves it and how much she wants kids in her life like I think that is such a tender great tribute to that actor's ability that really sails and one more thing about Valentine in the book, there's a moment I love where Clem Dell is talking about, yeah, my friends are me a surprise party. And I was like, Valentine? I felt that so true to when you're starting to get to know somebody and you're learning about the people in their lives. And it just shows that Emma really cares. She's been listening. She's been taking mental notes and she knows it's Valentine. And I think that's cool. I totally agree. I think one of the ways that you know, you can think about it that in your own life is like, even if you're just talking to a friend, even if it's not a romantic interest and someone remembers like, oh, this is where you went to college or this is your mom's name or this is your partner's name. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it means so much. And to see that change in her face when that moment happens is magic. I think that's such a tender, subtle moment that means a lot. And yeah. I, actually, one of the other magic moments, and this is a question I have for both of you, I'm not somebody who has ever really been in love before. The, I think, famous scene from this graphic novel, one of my favorites, is where they meet for the first time on the street. It replicates it in the movie with some success, but the way that they both look back uh, and the full page panel, what was that moment like for y'all, if I may ask? Did you have a love at first sight moment? Or was there a moment where like, hey, who is this? When I experience love, I'll comment on that as well. <laughs> I will shut this podcast down. You set me up for that. You set me up for that. Shut it down. Well, that's, Laura knew she was question. in love with me when I farted in front of her uh, about four months That's true. Four that's a true story. Her. I didn't know we were sharing that with people, but that is a true story. <laughs> well, it might just be with me. You have, Danny has editing power. <laughs> that's true. No, we're keeping that in. Uh, yeah. That, no, the, the feeling of love was gradual it's like a, a wave of warmth and there can be love at first sight situations and there can be gradual situations and i think for both laura and i'm speaking for you laura but it was pretty immediate within our first few dates that we're like yeah we're going to be dating for a while here and then it kind of was we blinked and four months had gone by and like after a day of uh, rock climbing i remember that day well it was kind of like an obvious like yeah we're both riding this high like i it sounds corny to 
use this metaphor, but like we were both surfing on this wave of, of warmth. And I think something that the movie captures very well is that young love, which is closer to infatuation than than I guess what, what we had. I'm not saying that the two characters were in love. I just think going back to uh, Adele's inexperience and her just her age, I feel like she was just so obsessed with that feeling that uh, she had with, with the initial years of her relationship with Emma is that like when she w- started to feel lonely and unseen and unheard in a relationship, she was chasing that high again. And that you can liken it to addiction and that her she had withdrawals in a sense and just tried to get that feeling in any way possible and that's that's at least my interpretation of of why she cheated i mean of course you have she was feeling lonely but it's like then you get to the question of of, of why she was feeling lonely so i, I think i think the movie did that that really well uh, of young love and you know call me by your name we, we mentioned the parallels of that of timothy chalamet's performance and that he's just like crying uncontrollably and, and it's not that normal melodramatic crying you see in you know soap operas of someone slamming against a, a wall and slowly falling down to their you know butt and just sobbing it's like no it's just this weird uncontrollable emotion that's erupting out of you and then you're like quiet and loud and you're smiling while you're crying it's it's beyond explanation like why we we act in in the ways we do with love so yeah that that's i guess my very long-winded musings on (laughs) on love and cinema i like this question because you talked about how the graphic novel is maybe a little bit melodramatic i'm not saying it can't happen but i certainly never really had a love at first sight moment And so I think it's a little for literary effect that it happens in the book. It's just, you know, snap. And then, of course, the way that they make their way back together is a little dramatic, which is fine, because honestly, I think there is something to be said about first loves, exactly like what Danny was saying, and and like in Call Me By Your Name and Perks of Being a Wallflower. There's something really magical about the first time that you date someone. I dated semi a lot, like not a lot, a lot, but like I dated other people before Danny. Semi a lot. And I definitely, yeah, (laughs) semi a lot. I don't know what's normal, but yeah, like I never, I never said I love you to anyone else. I don't think I dated anyone long enough to really let love develop so I don't think that I ever had that like puppy love moment as much as it's cliche or maybe someone else might have that kind of love at first sight connection like as much as that's not true to my own love story I think it's really true to like when your hormones are so high and you see someone on, on the street there are plenty of moments I think probably when I was like between the ages of 13 and 17 where I like saw someone crossing the street and I was like we're going to be together forever and I'm going to bump into that person later today and we're going to have this like insane love story. In the book, it really works. And and I think yeah. it's a fun way for them to meet, like maybe a little bit of a stretch of reality, but it's just really true to the time or the age that they are in the book. So I don't think it takes away from, I think, it, in fact, it adds to the infatuation levels. Yeah. Danny raised a good point about the, how she almost gets addicted to falling in love or to having that like puppy love romance. Like, Clamdell has an addictive personality. I don't think I realized that 
until we were just talking about it. So that's interesting in the ending of the book. I guess, yeah, literally where she has an addiction in, in the book. Yeah. It's funny to read that and having just coming from Queen's Gambit, where the main character also has a pill addiction. You see some funny crossovers with this podcast. Also, this book and movie is, is the second book and movie this season to feature graphic uh, lesbian sex. Oh, as, as The Handmaiden, the other one? Well, yes. uh, from that episode, you kind of talk about uh, how that genre of movie has become like its, its own thing. Carol being one of them, I remember you referencing. And this is kind of an interesting, the character of Sabine, Emma's girlfriend at the start of the book and of the movie, who gets ingloriously written out of <laughs> the rest of the movie, she leaves the bar and then we never, never see, see her, her again. again. Yeah, she's a big, just a big doofus who's just like, hey, yeah. who is this? Kind and of bumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she she and Emma have a bit of that relationship going on. I think they're like the start of their relationship is like a Carol affair where Emma is Therese. In the book, she talks about how Sabine has given her all these opportunities to showcase her art, that she's the reason that Emma has had any success at all. And I think that is when it comes to the idea of class or opportunity, if there is any play there between the two characters, Sabine is a huge part of it. And I think a huge weakness of the movie is not exploring that. I totally agree. As soon as you started talking about Sabine, I wanted to talk about how that actually could have filled a lot of the three hours of time, I think, because it is a really interesting exploration because Emma and Sabine have a very different kind of relationship than Emma and Clemdell. Emma is technically cheating on Sabine with Clemdell in the book. And I think that is really interesting how she strings Clemdine along. Clemdell. Adela Dean. I'm like smoothing all of these names. She strings Clemdell along for a really long time because I'm not sure that she's seen maybe the maturity level that she wants to see before committing to Clemdell because I think maybe she does have, she either has sort of an addictive relationship with Sabine or she is actually fairly committed. That complexity and that like play in relationships is not something that we get a lot of times from a simple rom-com or a simple drama we don't really get those things and I think diving into that kind of situation in film would have been really interesting for us to see but we don't get that at all like it's literally Sabine leaves the bar and that's it we don't see her at all no doubt like everything you said is 100% true it would have made the movie so much have so much more depth uh and we missed the French line reading of Left me for a piece of ass, and that's all you are—a piece of ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't get any of that. Yeah. I guess it was cut. I, I think they made the decision to have Emma leave her just so when when Adele eventually cheats on her, there isn't a double standard. Although, to your to both of your points, that could have added some complexity to their breakup scene, where Adele was countering with, "Well." We wouldn't be here today unless you cheated. So I, I, I do see both sides. There. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's implied kind of that Emma does cheat. And in many, in a, in a way, emotionally, she is cheating at that party by spending so much time. Absolutely. And claiming that there's yes. no attraction to leave. And they, of course, don't 
touch that at all. I think Kashif was probably like, I feel like this is too many women. <laughs> this movie is so long. I'm I'm honestly forgetting. We're gonna get a two parter episode. Really We're gonna get two parter episode. Honestly, we can get a two parter <laughs> out of this. It's La Vida del chapters one and two so it's titled that because in the movie there's like a distinct time jump as we've alluded to before but there's no title card saying like this is chapter two kashish did that to say like her journey is going to continue he's not going to make more films supposedly about adele but that's why the title is that it's like this is like the first part of her life the first part of her sexual exploration that is interesting so it's not so much as a a structure as sort of artistic but, choice <laughs> right but yeah they're like yeah it's it's not going to work for american audiences so let's just title it the title of the graphic novel that's mm-hmm. why actually another fun fact based on that i found out that in one of the earlier translations this was translated to blue mm-hmm. angel which i also thought is interesting because it kind of throws more weight behind the argument that it's more about emma than as as far as the graphic novel goes it's more about but i mean i think that this title is much more oh beautiful blue is the warmest color is so poetic blue angel i mean come on <laughs> that's i feel like that's a a doo-wop song from the 1950s like that's you just took all the poetry out of that title. Or a roller, like a roller derby queen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just like, I'm uninterested in that title. But blue is the warmest color. I think even that can spark a conversation about the symbolism of her hair being blue. And it's almost like Schindler's List in a lot of ways, where the first part of the novel, really the only color that you see is the blue hair and a blue sweater or a blue sleeve, rather than seeing a lot of color in the graphic novel. Did we also mention that Jewel Moreau illustrated mm-hmm. the graphic novel i'm not sure if we talked about that it is their whole piece. Cool. yeah i think it's absolutely beautiful i think the art style is really different than anything that i've ever seen and it took them i think like five years to complete this but they published it when they were like 27 yeah. i think that's absolutely. incredible like i'm 27 and i haven't done anything this artistic and we're doing it right now this episode (laughs) exactly i mean i just i just wish that i could be an artist like this because i could cut these pages out and frame them they're just beautiful i'm 27 and the other day i ordered uh, two slices of pizza from 7-eleven in my flip-flops so that just shows you where Oh, you didn't get the pasta bolognese well i guess maybe (laughs) maybe you're a liar after all danny I've oh crap I did say I don't know if 7-Eleven has a bolognese I think they have a ricotta penne pasta but I haven't checked to see if they have a bolognese yet Oof, maybe not maybe don't try that I'm gonna do my it. bolognese has a first name it's O-S-C-A-R <laughs> what is that uh, it's the, the bologna song but bolognese instead of bologna the Oscar Mayer song oh I have not heard that you've never heard the Oscar Mayer song Pop culture (laughs) references around Laura just usually don't. Right. Right Uh, Yeah, look it up. It's a delight. Oh, speaking of songs that are a delight, the French Happy Birthday song, Slap. This is okay. So, if we want to start talking about music in this movie, there is none. There is none. Did anyone feel like that added or subtracted from their experience of the movie at all? I didn't realize it while watching it. It was in doing research afterwards where I found there was no score. And in my notes, it just says no score because I guessed. I was like, what? But it's so true. I actually didn't notice it until possibly an hour into the movie. 
Well, I'm a cinephile film critic with a stick up my ass, so I noticed it immediately. However, I thought you'd laugh at that. Uh, we'll, I am laughing, we'll, but I'm trying not to cut you off. We'll edit in uh, laughs here. <laughs> Just this note for post. A laugh track. Notice at the hour 30 minute mark, add Laura laughing. Okay. Um, but yeah, I did notice it. However, I think I'm coming up a little bit more positive on the movie. It seems like I felt totally immersed. We have mentioned the acting and how exceptional it was and how it probably should have been up for awards uh, in America. It did well in France, but nowhere else really financially too. It, it's doing well in digital sales, but when it was released in America, it barely made an impact but i think yeah just the lack of score it's just an absolute total immersion into the life of adele into her perspective it enhances the sounds around her so much so that at the very end of the movie when there finally is some form of a soundtrack that comes back the drums the the street performer which is kind of a poetic end to uh, her relationship with emma because the drums are going on when they first see each other in the street and like signaling the, the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then when she leaves the art gallery, the drums come back and it's like the, now this is the true end because they kind of half end their relationship in the cafe where they have that passionate makeout session. And I was kind of getting, I think that scene is very effective, but I was like getting uncomfortable for the other cafe or bar patrons around them i'm like does, is anyone seeing this it's right now? france they see it all the time yeah uh, i think i think that seems wonderful but it does have that element of like they're in public right now should they be doing this but yeah so that scene they end the relationship but the passion is clearly still there but then when she goes to the art exhibit and you know emma says hi but then goes on about her life and her event when she leaves it's like I think the decision to bring back those drums is just like chef's mm. kiss for a cinephile like me of like, oh, that is cinema <laughs> right there. Uh, I, I think, yeah, uh, to add a score would make the, the movie melodramatic. I, I think it, it was vital that it wasn't included. I see what you're saying, but then I, I think of movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, which is also very similar in theme with first love and being swept up by the emotions of that experience. And I just think of that score and I'm like, that adds so much to the movie or Sufjan Stevens score and songs in call me by your name. Like, I don't know. I, I, I maybe well, it's just, it's probably just a, a personal opinion, but I just, I feel like move these score like sweeps me away that, into that that is a fair point and a brilliant point at that my only counter is that when you're watching bill street or call me by your name the score really draws attention to the fact that this is a a movie this is cinema like feel this emotion now whereas like i think card. yes yeah. right and that's not to say that it's cheap it's doing what a score is supposed to do inform your emotion and your take on the scene but i think what this movie does it goes in the more documentary route but it has that added element of it being a movie so it's not it's not a documentary it's a movie where it has some artistic elements to it but it's like totally about immersion into life and like mundane nature of life it's getting to the same goal as something like bill street but in a completely different way 
And then I think to add a score, it would be like mixed signals. And it'd be like, wait a second, is this supposed to be documentary style? Is this supposed to be like a traditional movie? Like what's really going on here? Well, I guess, yeah, like it's a very European style. Oh, yes. Movie. Yeah. So I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's just a very different audience that this was made for. I don't know. I, I love movie scores, so yes. <laughs> I, I missed oh, yeah. it, but that's just me. Well, anyway. Laura, when we cover a fun home from its book adaptation to its stage adaptation on stage lit, uh, we'll be able to talk all about score and graphic novel, queer coded messaging as it turns to music. And Danny, you'll be somewhere I... else. I'll be doing my podcast on football and grilling meat. Football and lit. <laughs> sports and literature it's gonna be called um, the gruff and tough (laughs) boys only podcast today we're talking super bowl 14 based on the novel the same name by ernest hemingway (laughs) by ernest hemingway exactly um no sage you bring up a really interesting point we have not covered a theatrical production yet and One of the things that I started debating really early in my literature education career was, is it better to see a Shakespearean play first or read it first? And I think we would have a really interesting conversation about that debate. But anyway, we can... We can refocus because we've drifted, but I don't know if it's. I, I can't wait to cover it. Theatrical Absolutely, production. and I don't know if my intentions are transparent here, but I am just trying to get more episodes in than either of the Gaylord brothers. I'm just trying to turn this into a two parter and trying to get myself some more stage time, just so that uh, yeah, they they know they know where they lie on the chain. They're already asking for more episodes, which is honestly disrespectful. <laughs> I'm calling out Tim and Matt. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like I get it. You're my brothers, but like, so what? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you will be back, Sage. Of course, you will be back. Well, we'll see. We'll see how this episode. Yeah, does. I know. I, it's a, a a bringer. I have to bring five friends to the podcast, so I want to get some. So I get some time. <laughs> uh hashtag grow the show that's a that's a callback to another podcast that we know and love called pen pals anyway why are you plugging other shows we got to plug uh no all right so what else do we want to talk about what what else can we dig into because there's there's plenty i think there's something to be said for just we kind of talked about it when it comes to the graphic novel the amount of blue that appears in the movie and the book i think it's very compelling how they use it. I think it is a really fun structure, especially in the book and a little bit in the movie. It's harder to do, I think, in the movie because all of it is in color and I'm so happy it wasn't in black and white with just accents. I think that would have been so infuriating. I think they kind of overdo the blue in the movie, but in the book, I think there are really beautiful choices. Like at one point when Clemdell is just delighted with her life, she like looks up at the sky and it's blue. And I think that is such a wonderful note. I think as Emma washes her hair out eventually, like that's, and the, the life changes for them both. That is a really cool narrative bent. What do you all think? I totally agree. Do you want to talk first? Cause I feel like I've been jumping in a lot. <laughs> yeah. You have the most obvious example of after her breakup, when she's in the ocean and th- this image was put on like a lot of the promotional material but when Adele is just floating the calm ocean water the blue is literally surrounding her mirroring how she can't get Emma 
out of her head. Emma is literally could drown her like if she's not careful. It's on the nose, but I think the cinematography is beautiful enough to make it work. Yeah, I'm I'm just like flipping through the graphic novel to see where it pops up. Her diary pops up as blue a couple times. And Mm -hmm. I think we talked a little bit about safe spaces earlier, but I think it also sort of signals that this is a safe place for her to express herself and not only express herself, but just explore herself. That's something that we all do as young people and as adults. And like you were saying, like the flashes of blue in the diary and in the sky show when she's happy. Just pull in the title of the graphic novel and the American title of the movie. Like, I think warm is a really key word. Like this is where she feels like herself and like the best self or the best expression of herself again I just like how that reflects on how her her journaling and her writing in her diary doesn't have to mean that she knows exactly what she wants it just means that she feels happy and safe exploring that and asking herself questions and I think like that's a really beautiful way of showing growth and you talked a lot about confronting internalized homophobia and like that's something that she really grows through by writing in her diary that's such like a humbling experience because of course like I I still do that I still address my internalized homophobia and racism and you know, expectations and all of those things that we're ingrained with when we're children, unfortunately. Like, I think that's, it's a really humbling experience. And so for her to like open up like that on the page and we see that when like the blue sort of seeps into her life is visually really powerful. Yeah. And I think I could be wrong about this. I was just kind of like glancing through to see if I could catch, correct myself. But hey, people who are listeners, read between the lines call me out. My social media will be listed at the end. Uh, Eviscerate me. Take me down. Uh, I believe the diary is blue in the beginning. uh, But when you see Clemdell's mom present the book that she wants to write in as she's dying at the end, it's green when things are more full color. So it's almost that in hindsight is where it is blue. The memory of it being more potent than its actual coloring. Mm. which I think is kind of a a you know what you're totally right I found it's green but at the beginning I believe it is blue so you're right there okay so I've used this time to go through the book and try to find instances where the diary pops up so the last time we see the diary is on page 154 and to me it's like turquoise it's definitely darker but I think the other thing to pull in as well is that the pages 152 and 153 when Clendell is in the hospital that is really vividly green do you see like how the walls and the bed and the sheets and the pants and the shadows yeah which is kind of showing that as time goes the memory takes over yeah and Mm -hmm. it ends on the ocean which I think is also very fitting the final, the closing picture being the sea. And they talk about varying shades of blue throughout the turquoise and the aqua, deep blues. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I really like, I like your read of how the memory washes away. And then the very last line of the graphic novel is beyond death, the love that we shared continues to live. And even if your ex-partner doesn't die, those memories really inform the way that you not only conduct yourself in your next relationship, but just conduct yourself as a single person. You make a similar point in the Call Me By Your Name episode. 
and it mm. made me realize re-listening to it then as it is listening now as someone who's not had a lot of relationships in her life I feel like sometimes that I have stunted my own growth in a way that's why I know nothing about myself but I'm the least of all my people no I'm kidding uh, <laughs> but it is it's so true I think of heartbreak and, and trial and error through relationships can be I just hit my mic <laughs> <laughs> could be so uh so impactful. Thin so ice age. <laughs> don't cut the podcast i need to get a two-parter i need to show matt and jim what's what uh but i do think it's such a good point that's all too long didn't read you have great points laura you're a genius oh sage no i think like the thing about relationships because obviously they're not all good and i have i have been in very not good relationships like I think you know it's it's one of those things where I guess you just like stumble into that kind of stuff right like you don't go in knowing that you're gonna date people or how long you're gonna date people and like I don't know yeah I don't know just growth is just an interesting thing and like what you learn from other people when you're single versus when you're in a relationship but yeah I don't know it's just I don't know just life am I right wow what a what a great way to sum that statement up oh man i kind of regret that genius claim now honestly you should awkward i don't know why you ever said that but i'm a genius right too sage i danny i forgot you were here Uh, yeah i get it that happens a lot on that note we arrive at final thoughts so sage final thoughts on the graphic novel and the movie and final rating out of four stars unless you have more to say i have yeah i'll have two final thoughts one is the thing i've alluded to and then another one's like a kind of a funny thing uh i think knowing that jewel has been on a journey after this book came out and came out as as non-binary and transgender i think i see a lot of notes in this book that seem to indicate somebody who is dealing with their gender identity more than just dealing with their uh, sexuality. And I think that those are very interesting. And I wonder if it wasn't something that I had latched onto in my first reading as I was figuring out my own journey. And it's certainly something that I latched onto reading it this time. And I think they're very compelling. I wrote down a couple of the lines throughout as I go through my own notes. I have so many notes. Oh, yes. Is that Emma constantly questioning Clemdale's journey and being like, someday you'll find a man which kind of kind of feels like by erasure on mm. its first note. I don't think it is. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. At one point uh, she tells Clemdale that guy will be the luckiest man in the world. And Clem's response in the journal or to herself is you are that guy. And the very beginning, Emma's talking to Clem's parents after Clem has passed and saying, if I were a man, she would have fallen in love with me anyway. I just think there are more than one example that shows that Jewel was working through their journey even then when this book came out. And I think that's so cool because it shows that there's no one way that you figure this out. We're all still figuring this out. If there's one takeaway that I had from this book uh, is how much of a badass Jewel Moreau is. I love Jewel Moreau. Looking into their journey, looking into their social media, uh, some videos that they posted, they're just so cool so that's a huge takeaway uh the last thing i think is is quite funny is is uh there's two lines here that i think show both of a misinterpretation of characters that maybe you're writing off your ass about like one kashis directing or writing the screenplay adaptation is when clemdale is dancing with antoine the the man she cheats with she has a moment where she's like it's too hot and then takes her hair down which makes <laughs> no sense <laughs> 
That is so true. Like, yeah, you're never going to do that when you're never going to do that. And then in the book, there's a moment where I think once Clemdale has kind of left Emma to figure her stuff out and she's like hanging out with Valentine and her other friends, Eli, like one of her male friends is like, says, I quote, I have to take a piss before I kick your ass in foosball. And that's just like, uh, what do men talk about? I'm just going to try my best attempt. (laughs) That's hilarious. So I wanted, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring those up because I think they're really funny. It's so funny. I don't, this is a little bit of a, a veer, but there's a show called The Circle on Netflix that is really silly, but I've actually like, I've actually, it's actually like really endeared itself to me. And the whole concept is like, you know, people can play the game as anybody on their social media account. And one of the people who's on the show is dating a woman, but she tries to flirt with some of the guys on the show to like increase her chances of winning the $100,000 prize. And every time she's flirting, she's like, I don't know what to say. She's like, this is so gross. Like, I don't want to say this or like, how do? (laughs) it's so funny. And on the same, uh, in the same vein too, like there are some women who take on the persona of a man. And so they're trying to like talk to men in like a bro way or like talk about sports. And they're like, I don't know what to say. Like, do I talk about a specific team? Do I talk about like, what do I say? I just think it's so funny to watch that like struggle because I'd be in the same position. (laughs) Absolutely. Everything I know about sports, I learned from Danny's literature sports podcast. Go Pats. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Anyway. And as far as the rating, I think I would put, I think both the movie and the book at two and a half out of four stars. I think they're definitely, definitely worth checking out. 100%. When it comes to the graphic novel, I think it's wonderful for what it did at the time coming out in 2010. There have been a lot of greater ways to tell that story since. And if you are interested in, in kind of where in a graphic novel sense, this may have had its foundation. I think it's wonderful to go. And there's some beautiful illustration and some really wonderful moments that I think Jewel is kind of finding their way. And I'm excited to read. They have two or three graphic novels that will come out since this one. And I am going to seek them out because I think they're very talented and a badass. The movie I think there's a beautiful movie in there. Find it where you want it. There's some great subtlety and the acting alone is a reason to check this movie out. And uh, I don't like Kashish <laughs> at all. Well said. Well said. Yeah, talk about taking responsibility for other people's work. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to rate the movie slightly higher than the graphic novel. Am I going to get canceled? No, it's fine. It's I, whatever you got out of it. As long as you got something out of it. Yeah. No, I positive. Mean, something positive yeah. out of it. No, the graphic novel <laughs> was good. I, I'm, I'm right there with you with two and a half stars. It is beautiful. And I, I got some of it, you know, a call to action like Laura was talking about earlier. I think I, I just do think that the ending was a bit melodramatic and that unfortunately soured the whole experience for me. Uh, the movie uh, needed uh, an editor and probably a director who wasn't so far up his own ass. I'm three stars on the movie and it's really the only thing holding it back is its length and the fact that the scenes go on. I mean, how I view it like as a male viewing the 
these two female bisexual lesbian experiences, I don't think holds that much weight, but I just think from a purely pacing standpoint, that's, that's where most of my problems come. But so yeah, three out of four. Thank you both for sharing. The graphic novel, I'm going to give three stars because I got a lot out of it. I thought it was really beautiful and I'm still discovering graphic novels. And so of the graphic novels that I've read, I think this was really like beautifully done. And I listened to it in a very different way than I listened to other graphic novels, just because I'm not as familiar personally with Joel's experiences that she shared in the graphic novel. Oh gosh, this isn't something that we dove into, Sage, but I was going to talk about how a lot of queer relationship books and movies end in tragedy rather than like oh yeah yeah gosh we didn't touch on that I was gonna talk about that but we didn't well we'll talk about it offline possibly but but that was that that took away from it a little bit too like I understood the end and how they didn't get together but I also thought it was a little melodramatic that she died and it was a little disappointing to see a love story not turn out for the best anyway three stars I'm rambling uh no it's great I think two and a half, I'm going to stick with two and a half because of the director and how disappointed I was when I started doing research after I had watched it and and enjoyed it a lot. So it's a little bit of a tough sell, but I got some positive things out of it. So two and a half stars out of four. Yeah. Well, Sage, this has been a wonderful chat, uh, but you're only tied with Matt and Tim now, so you're not winning. Um, well, I'll say like they said at the end of Super Bowl fourteen. sometimes a tie going into the second half is all you need because this isn't over. You hear that, boys? This isn't over. <laughs> well, we'll Sage is coming for blood. She'll kill yeah. you. All victory right, well, is the warmest color, boys. Victory. <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that. That's going to be in the description of this episode. Victory yeah. is the warmest color. <laughs> Uh, we were just talking about how queer people aren't always villains, and here I am. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sage of Innocence underscores after every word. That's where I post a lot of my show and silly stuff. Perfect. All right. Well, just like the movie, this podcast was three hours. I think that was where life imitates art. And much like the book, Bella, quote being, only love will save the world. And I love you both. You are my world. Oh, Sage, you're our world. Come out and visit us. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Okay. okay. Well, Sage, yeah, you're an important (laughs) person in in both of our our lives. So thank you for being such a a warm and inviting presence. Your intellect and joy for the world has no bounds. Uh, I'm so impressed and is impressed and stunned by you every day so i i wish we lived closer but yeah uh, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us because this takes not only the you know two hours plus of recording but also the reading and the movie and the note taking and the research thank you so much for going on this journey with us truly a delight thank you for having me and sage will return with a new episode to uh, beat matt and tim's record and a okay. new podcast, Stage Lit. Look out for it. Danny, you can <laughs> do your own thing. <laughs> it's right after the man show. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was actually a real show. Never mind. The Iron Man show. Yes. We, we shall see you on the next one. <laughs>